Good morning, everyone. Uh, yeah, I'm Celeste, and today's passage is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh, the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Hi, everyone. It's uh, great to be able to continue this Ephesians series. Well, Joe and I have been watching um, uh, our Netflix show at the moment, anyway, uh, is uh, this fun Australian-American series, comedy, uh, called Irreverent. Anyone seen it? Oh, good, that's good, because I'm going to about t- tell you about it. It's set in the tropical uh, far north Queensland. I think it's filmed on Mission Beach. And the premise is that this Chicago gangster has um, got himself into trouble and um, one of the opposing gangs in Chicago are, are chasing him to murder him. And so he flees to Australia. And on the way to Australia, this, this gangster's name Paul Paolo, on his way to Australia, he um, sits next to an Anglican minister uh, who's coming to uh, the, uh, Queensland uh, to be an Anglican minister in far north Queensland um, in this town called Clump. And anyway, the, the Anglican minister has a bit of a crisis. He's like, oh, I don't know, you know, um, he's, he's having trouble in his marriage and, and you know, um, they end up sort of hanging out a bit together in the sur- surface paradise in a, in a hotel. And the, the minister sort of, uh, they, I think they get drunk together or something, and the minister takes an opportunity and steals the gangster's money and he runs off, and his clothes and everything. And so the gangster wakes up, and all he's got left is the minister's Ang- Anglican minister clothes, you know, the, the shirt and the robes and everything, and his car, which is a, a funeral hearse. So the minister, uh, the, the Paolo, the gangster says, well, and he puts on the clothes, and he decides to drive to Clump in far north Queensland in disguise, and he thought, you know, I'm never going to be found here by the, by the gangster, by, by, by the, um, the, the Chicago enemy gangs. And so he goes up to um, far north Queensland and they think he's the minister arrived to take over the, the local church, you know. And um, so it's this kind of comedy of errors where he's sort of suddenly finding himself having to preach a sermon and, and do a wedding and a funeral and pastorally care for people. And he's, you know, not a Christian, but he 
befriends this um, young adult woman who's sort of down and out and she's got a chronic illness and, um, and she helps him a bit and gives him a kid's Bible story book and, and he sort of learns the things. And he's on the phone because he has the phone number of this minister who he knows has ripped him off. And um, he says, what do I do? What do I do? I've got to do this wedding. I've got to do this funeral, you know. And so the series goes on and it's, it's a lot to it. But um, the interesting thing about it is that as the minister... Oh, sorry, as the gangster pre- pretends to be a minister and does all the things of ministry, he starts to kind of change and become this almost Christ-like figure in the community. In some ways, the Netflix producers have got it right. They've, 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 they're showing the effects of the gospel on a person, even though it's not intended to be a Christian show at all. There's a transformation that takes place in him from being this sort of self-centred gangster to being an other-focused person. Anyway, but this is Christian discipleship. Uh, there's something that occurs in us as, as Christians when we're, if you're, if, you're, if you're a Christian and you're growing in your discipleship, a change occurs over time that makes you not focused on yourself but focused on others. And it's an amazing transformation, and especially, you know, to watch somebody else go through that. And you think to yourself, what powerful force causes a person to change like this? This passage shows us that it's the powerful divine force that causes a person to be cut off from God and then to be brought close to God. And that's what this morning's sermon is essentially about, that shift from alienation from God, from being far away to to being brought close, to belonging to God. It's a a change that occurs, occurs in you. Um, and that all that that means, and there's so much that that means. The idea is that once that you have been saved by Jesus and you realise this miracle has happened, a shift occurs in you, in your identity. And it's a shift that is profound on so many levels. And it's not just about your identity, it's about the church as a community and our identity. So the three points I've got for us this morning, just to flag it at the start, is if we know our origin story as being apart from Christ, will be humble towards others. And then secondly, if we know our peace in God, we'll have peace with others. And thirdly, if we know that God has made us into his new society, then we'll bring God's love to others. So let's look at this first idea. If we know our origin story as apart from Christ, we'll be humble towards others. Paul talks to these Gentile Christians in Ephesus and he says, remember, remember your origin story. Remember that you were separate from Christ and you were not part of the Jewish community. You were not part of Israel. You weren't part of the people who call themselves the circumcision. You were called the uncircumcision. You were not receivers of the blessings of God or the promises of God. You were not receivers of all the incredible promises that God has given to Israel. You were without hope. You were without God. Remember, he says it twice, remember that origin story. And he says, because now you are part of God's people. Jesus has died on the cross for your sins. He has rescued you. And now you've been brought close to him. You are joined to Christ. You are close to God. Many translations use the word alien. You were an alien um, to the people of God and to God. The uh, English, the ESV, English Standard Version says, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. This term alienation is an important concept that's bandied around in philosophy and psychology and politics. 
It's the problematic separation of a subject from the object that it belongs to. Uh, and Karl Marx famously used it in his, in his thinking and his philosophy about a person being alienated from their humanity. Um, but this idea of alienation actually goes back to the Bible. A lot of um, uh, hist historians of Marx make that collect connection that he borrowed off German philosophers. That because in the Bible, writers talk about these two problematic separations of a human being from God and also human beings from each other. And this alienation has been caused by human sin, according to the book of Genesis, when we read the opening chapters. Um, uh, there's, there's terrible alienation that occurs between the people and God in the garden and then from each other. And then there's consequences of that as we see the children of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and the murder that occurs. God is our created. We are creator. We are made in his image, but sin has alienated us from God. And this was not right. And Paul is saying to the Ephesians, don't forget you too were once alienated from God and from the people of God. But the good news is that God chose to do something about it, which was to send Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, was nailed to a Roman cross and just as he was breathing his last breath, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced alienation from the Father so that we could be brought close to God. Paul says to the Gentiles in Ephesus, Remember what you were. Remember. And if you are a Christian, you should remember too, because we are just like the Ephesians. We are just like the Gentiles in Ephesus. You too, if you are a Christian, were once alienated from God, cut off from your Creator, cut off from the Lord of heaven and earth, cut off from Jesus. So why is remembering our origin story so important? There's many terrible things about our past that you don't want to remember. You'd rather forget. So why is Paul saying remember this? And he's saying because remembering our past alienation will enable us to remember the greatness and the glory of what God's done for us now. The way he's provided forgiveness and reconciliation and continuing to transform us. And one of the ways it transforms us is that it makes us humble towards others because we know that we're brought close to God, brought close to Christ because of our greatness, not because of our greatness or personal holiness, or achievements. We've been given the most precious gift. Jesus calls it the pearl of great price. And it's easy to forget what we were, what we were once and become arrogant. I, I don't like the way some Christians engage in the culture wars in Australia because they don't seem to have any humility. They come across as hating their opponents or the people that disagree with them. It's true that there are many people who really don't like Christians and think that Christianity is a negative influence on society. But our response has to begin from a place of humility. Humility doesn't have to mean that you have no response or that you don't hold to convictions. In fact, it's crucial for Christians to stand out and be distinct. As we find out later on in um, Ephesians 6, Christians should put on our breastplate of righteousness, our helmet of salvation. We should speak up, put on the armour of God. But even soldiers should be humble. Be a noble warrior. Remember what you once were. The same goes for church politics. 
Christians spend too long fighting amongst ourselves across the aisle. In church history, this has happened. Evangelicals versus progressives, Catholics versus Protestants, Charismatics versus Presbyterians. I don't know if there was much of a fight there. Uh, Arminians versus Calvinists once upon a time. Um, if you ever talk to Patrick Sen about Switzerland, some of the things that happened in Switzerland in the, in the Reformation, full on. This should not happen. People of God have been brought close in a miraculous event by God through Jesus. Remember what you once were and it will make you humble. You were aliens, but you were being brought close. Be humble towards each other. Secondly, if we know our peace in God, says Paul, we'll have peace with other, others. Paul goes on to point out that God has done the unthinkable and brought Jews and Gentiles together, the circumcised with the uncircumcised, and created a new humanity. So there's no more hostility. Paul says, for he himself is our peace. He has created a new humanity out of two groups, thus making peace. Now Jews and Gentiles both have access to the Father by the one Spirit. And how did Jesus give us this peace in humanity? Paul said that Christ set aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations in verse 15. What does it mean here? That sounds a bit weird. Um, he set aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations. Doesn't Jesus explicitly say in the Sermon on the Mount that for verily I say unto you till heaven and earth pass, not one jot, jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled? Sorry, I had to quote the King James. It's the one verse I like to quote. Jesus is saying, you know, not one dot from the I or cross from the T is going to be removed from the law. Um, what's Paul saying when Christ, he says Christ set aside the law? It seems Paul... Maybe Paul and um, Jesus are talking about the law in different ways here. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about perhaps the moral law, the difference between the righteousness of the Pharisees and Christian righteousness. And he's saying, I'm not changing God's moral law. In fact, he goes on to say he's raising the bar. Uh, it's not just murder, it's anger towards a brother or sister, he says. It's not just adultery, it's, it's lust towards another person that matters to God. Jesus was being a, a radical, but in Ephesians 2 verse 15, Paul is saying, talking about this, perhaps the ceremonial law, it's rules and regulations like circumcision, like the sacrifices, like the dietary regulations, like the rules around clean, cleanness and uncleanness, which determine who was in and out. Christ has done away with that. So there, there's no now, now concept of unclean and, and outcasts in God's kingdom. Christ has made a place for them. This is why the woman who had a constant period for years was able to be healed by Jesus. This woman who was once an outcast is now brought in close. But let's just think a bit more about the moral law in Jesus because maybe Paul's being tricky. Maybe he's being deep about the moral law as well. Because while Jesus did uphold the moral law and became more radical, he also removed it as a requirement for salvation. Nobody can keep the moral law, only Jesus can. And the law was a barrier between us all, Jew and Gentile, between hum human beings. But faith unites us. Anyone can come to faith in Jesus if they put their faith in Jesus. All Christians go through the same pathway, which is to go to the foot of the cross. 
And what did Jesus do on the cross? He abolished the regulation of the, of the ceremonial law and the condemnation of the moral law. Both divided us, but the cross has united us. We have peace with God, we have peace with each other. God has created a single new humanity. And friends, if we know the peace we have with God, we will have peace with others. We have peace with others, and especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, because we can approach God the Father together, Jew and Gentile alike. We have access to the Father by one spirit. This is not just about keeping tribes at peace with each other. Um, It's not just about saying... Um, you won't argue anymore and, and have enemies. It's, it's actually more profound than that. There's a theologian, Lynn Kohick. She says, the peace that Christ brings is not the absence of hostilities or even the willingness to tolerate the other. In Christ, there is no other. This is why Christians can proudly get behind racial justice causes. Some Christians have an issue, say, with Aboriginal justice. Or they say things like, Oh, it's just woke craziness or something. We need to get over that kind of thinking. It's true that in Christ there is no other. And if that's true, you can support uh, causes that advocate for marginalised communities. Paul is saying the peace and bond is between Jew and Gentile, but the principle here flows out into the wider world. This is why Jesus used Samaritans as a good example time and time again. If we know our peace, we have in God, we'll have peace with others. And thirdly, if we know that God has made us into his new society, we'll bring God's love to others. Christ has brought the Gentiles from being far off to being near to God and to his people. He's abolished the law of the commandments. He has created a single new community who is reconciled to God. So now the Gentiles are not what they used to be. They are no longer strangers, no longer spiritual aliens in a foreign land without legal rights. He says, you used to be refugees, now you have a home. And in case they don't see the significance of this, he gives three images which are really helpful to think about what they are, the status they have. First he says, you're a bit like God's kingdom. You you think of yourself this way. You actually are included in God's kingdom. You're fellow citizens with God's people. He's pointing to the group, not to individuals, to the group. He's saying, you have all the privileges and responsibilities of citizens of the kingdom of God. Not a, this is not a territorial kingdom like the Roman Empire. This is not based on race. It's a spiritual realm. It's an international uh, community ruled by God. When, when we go on our long service leave trips over to Scotland, Italy and Greece, funnily enough, it's a place where you can go and see um, all the old buildings of the Roman Empire. So even Scotland has old Roman Empire relics, but especially Italy and Greece. And, you know, tourists for centuries have gone to see the, the glories of the Roman Empire. But Paul is saying to the Ephesians, you've been made citizens in a far greater, more glorious kingdom. The second image he uses is of family. He goes intimate. He says, you're part of God's family now. Your members of his household. Being a citizen of, of the kingdom gives you rights and privileges and security, but being a member of a household describes the bond and the love and deep connection to God that flows through this new society that God has created. If you're part of God's household, you have direct access to the Father. 
The new family of God is not based on race or geography, but on salvation through Christ. So you can be brothers and sisters. It doesn't matter what background you have. This is God's new society. Then he uses this third image of temple. He says in verse 20 that they are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The temple in Jerusalem had been the focal point of their, uh, of their life as the, the Israelites, but now God had made a new temple of his people. And the foundation of this temple are prophets and apostles. The apostles Paul is talking about is the, 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 the apostles chosen by Jesus, the witnesses of the resurrection, the special apostles as opposed to people with an apostolic church planting gift or something. It was all, people like that were around at the time as well. Now he's talking about those special apostles, the witnesses of the resurrection, the people who wrote the New Testament, um, and the prophets as well. And, he, and he's actually, what he's interested in is, I think, they're, they're, the divine te- they're divinely inspired teaching. Paul's saying what they have left for us, which is the New Testament, is the foundation of the church. The church is built on the foundation of the scriptures. You mess with that foundation and the building falls down. And the cornerstone holding this temple up is Christ himself. It keeps the building steady. As the chief cornerstone, Christ holds everything together. Christ is essential to the unity. And each Christian is being built into this temple like a brick, like individual bricks sitting on top of the foundation and being held together by the cornerstone. And in this temple, this living temple, God dwells by his spirit. So there's a lot to take in here, this new society that if you're a Christian, you're part of. You were once alienated, but now you're brought in by God through what Christ has done. This new kingdom, this new family, this new temple, you're included. You have rights and privileges. You have access to the Father. You, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, you have brothers and sisters once you were aliens, but you were once spiritually homeless, without hope, but now you have all of this. And now that you have all this, your hearts will be changed. You'll see the world in a new way. You'll be empowered and motivated to bring God's love to, it, to others. How can you be a person who was rescued from the worst kind of alienation, alienation from God, and not want to bring God's love to others? If we remember what we once were, we will be humble about what God has done to us and humble towards others. If we know the peace we have in God, we will have peace with others. If we know we are God's new society, we'll bring God's love to others. Our business is not to put up walls, walls around class, race, gender or privilege. This is offensive to God. It's to miss the point of who we have been created to be. We are the people of peace the people of reconciliation and the people of love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you that you brought us close to you. Thank you that you did not abandon us or leave us alienated from you, that you created a way for us to be brought close. And we pray that we never forget that, that when we get lost in the complexities of life and in the struggles of, of, of just being a person in 2023, we pray that we never forget what you've done for us. Amen.